Welcome to another inspirational message from Northwest Church. We pray this message encourages and inspires you. If you would like any more information on what your next step may be, please visit our website at northwestchurch.com.au. One of the keys to the kingdom is that Jesus ate his way through the gospel. So on, on a, almost every encounter where there was a life transformed, Jesus did it over food. Some of you are going, thank God, I've finally found my calling. I can eat and be a Christian. And so what happened, what, I'm saying it to say this, that the reason that's important is because we've tried to do outreach and we're trying to do evangelism programs, but sometimes you should just take somebody for lunch. So we, we say in our church, we say discipleship is coffee with intention because Australians love coffee. So I think that reaching a community, you do it in the rhythm of your life, not in a jolt to your life, right? So we've got to jolt ourselves and we better go reach people. We make it a program, but it should be a part of the rhythm of your life, what you do. So I'm having breakfast this morning at my local cafe. What person that I know doesn't know Jesus that I could have a, have a breakfast with? And so I never finish having a breakfast, a coffee with non-Christians, and I, spe- I deliberately and intentionally have, I have multiple non-Christians in my life that I have lunch with. I never finish that time with them without asking this question, this has been great today, but how can I pray for you? Did you know that I have done that hundreds of times, I've, nobody's ever said no. And then when I meet with them again in four to six weeks, I just say, hey, by the way, I've been praying for you about that. How's it going? You can't, I can't tell you how many times they say things like, well, you wouldn't, it's quite amazing, actually. You wouldn't believe how this has changed or that's happened. So, so one of the, the, the way I changed my church from an old-style Pentecostal church to a community-engaging church is I redefined what was spiritual. So the most spiritual thing you could do in my church when we took it over was come to the front on a Sunday, get prayed for, fall on the floor. I mean, nobody spent more time on the carpet than Annette and I. We grew up hours under the power of the Holy Spirit. So it taught us that that's the most spiritual thing you could do. Now, it is still spiritual. It's not wrong. But I'm telling you, we taught our church the most spiritual thing you would do is lead your friend or work colleague to Christ. So I'm going to talk about that today. I'm going to talk about language. So I'm going to talk to you today about speak to the hand. Ready? Speak to the hand. I'm going to talk about the five things you need to unlearn, the five aspects of your life, the five languages, the five voices that you need to unlearn about how you currently speak and how you need to speak differently to them. We're going to read this horrible scripture. It's intense, this scripture. What do you see this? In James 3, 2. I'm going to read it to you. So. Bear with me because it gets pretty heavy. But it talks about the power of the tongue. So we all fail in many areas, but especially with our words. Yet if we're able to bridle the words, we say we are powerful enough to control ourselves in every way. And that means our character is mature and fully developed. Horses have bits and bridles in their mouths so that we can control and guide their large body. And the same with mighty ships Though they are massive and are driven by fierce winds, yet they are steered by a tiny rudder at the direction of the person at the helm. So the tongue is a small part of the body, yet it carries great power. Just think of a small flame, how how it can set a huge forest ablaze. And the tongue is a fire, 
it can be compared to the sum total of wickedness and is the most dangerous part of the human body. Who's encouraged? It corrupts the entire body and is a hellish flame. Goodness me, for a Saturday morning. It releases fire that can burn throughout the course of human existence. For every wild animal on earth, including birds, creeping reptiles, creatures of the seas, some of you got those in your church, and land have all been overpowered and tamed by humans. But the tongue is not able to be tamed. It is a fickle, unrestrained evil that spews out words of toxic poison. We use our tongue to praise our God and Father, then turn around and curse a person who is made in his very image. Out of the same mouth we pour out words of praise one minute and curses the next, my brothers and sister. This should never be. We know that Proverbs 18.21 says the tongue can bring death or life. So I want to talk, if that scripture is true, and I'm pretty sure it is, I want to talk to you how you can use your tongue, your voice, to change the environment of things around you. And I'm going to do five things this morning, five things. Number one, we're going to talk about how you need to change how you speak to yourself that you need to change how you speak to the culture around you. You should change how you speak to others, change how you speak to your past, and change how you speak to your future. Annette and I are coaches. We like asking people questions. In fact, if you ask us how our leadership style has changed over the years, we've moved, when it comes to our leadership team, we've moved from tellers to coaches. My team know that they don't, they're not allowed to bring to meetings that we have. They're not allowed to bring problems. What they bring to the room may be a problem, but they have to bring at least three solutions for the problem that they've thought. I am not and refuse to be the guru on the hill that everybody brings their life's problems to. If you are the guru, guru on the hill, it's a systemic problem because when you give people answers for their problems... They don't do it. They nod their head, but they go away and do whatever the heck they wanted to do. But if you can help somebody discover the answer for their own life, then they're more likely to make the change because they thought of it. So I have some questions. I'm going to be a coach. I have some questions I want to ask you around self. What do you talk to yourself about? Now, don't pretend you don't talk to yourself. Of course you talk to yourself. So if you talk to yourself, what are you talking to yourself about? What is the theme of your self-message? If we stop for a moment, I ask you to think about what do you constantly, you don't notice, what do you constantly hear yourself say about you? What's that theme? It's worth asking. What do you say about yourself in terms of who you are? What kind of leader? What kind of voice are you? What do you say to yourself when you're sick? What do you say when you're well, etc.? We spoke last session about unlearning, and this is unlearning today, I suggest, like Dr. Carolyn Leaf said, that just like the thoughts create grooves of thinking, tests have been done to show that your words also create things. In other words, she has found in her studies that when you say things like, uh, I think I'm going to be sick, she has found that your body instantly begins to react, readying itself for sickness. If I can be so bold to use Annette as an example. Normally I do this and she's not here, so it could be awkward because never check with her. It's gone all around Australia, by the way, in case you're wondering this example. 
So Annette, over the years, one of the things she's had to deal with is like chronic pain, pain that comes from nowhere. You can ask her about it later. So, so the bad thing about chronic pain for her is going to all the specialists, it's both good and bad. So she goes to all the specialists, they can't find a thing wrong with her. So that's kind of good. But what's bad is they can't fix it either, right? So what I noticed though, Annette's been at her best, at her best the last couple of years. She still gets pain and all that stuff. But what I noticed around the house, stuck on the, stuck on the fridge and stuck on the door. And if I didn't get it, it'd be stuck on me. You know, there'd be post-it notes everywhere. She just had began to put words that her doctor had given her that were words of confession. Like, for example, uh, she, there's still one on our fridge now. What is it, honey? Say it. I'm sore, but I'm safe. Um, because when Annette was sore, she thought she was going to die. So I watched the change when she started to say, I'm sore, but I'm saved, because her words, what she spoke, began to f- affect her physically. So I'm not going to, she, she stopped saying, I'm going to die. This is never going to end. And she changed her words. This is what Charles Spurgeon says. He says, beware of no person more than yourself. We carry our worst enemies within us. And just to keep it more modern and a little less spiritual, I'm going to quote from Jay-Z, who was recently, by the way, named the first billionaire um, rapper. I won't rap it, I'll just... No, no, you don't want me to do that. I don't want to lower your view. Um, I'm losing myself, I'm stuck in the moment, I look in the mirror, my only opponent. You have an inner voice that can be your worst enemy. And if you can learn to adjust the voice and theme of your life, you change everything mentally, emotionally and even physically about your life. You need to unlearn what you're currently saying to yourself. You know, years ago, I recommend, I've done this a lot, I like to say it publicly because I want to encourage you. I get counselling, probably every few years I'll go to a counsellor and then I have a mentor. We see our mentor three to four times a year. Uh, I get an hour, Keith Farmer, I get an hour, Nick gets an hour. We have an hour together. We've been doing that for 14 years. You know, across New South Wales, one of the things I'm trying to do, but you're all resisting it, um, is I'm trying to get health into pastors. But you all think you don't need it, but you do. Right? I tell you, the gone are the days where because 35 years in ministry and I've never needed any help, that's not admirable, that's foolish. You need help. Everybody needs help because you're human. So Annette and I, we've had marriage counselling four or five times over the years, sometimes up to 18 months at a time. We've had marriage counselling because Annette's difficult to live with. <laughs> Who knows, it might be the other way around. And I say that because it's important because you should not wait until it's nearly over before you get help. You should go straight away. So I remember going to a counsellor about five years ago and he, I, I, every scenario I was talking about, I kept using the word betrayal in terms of people leaving our church and the things people did. And, and, and he, put, he pulled me up and he said, Paul, you just everything you talk about, you just say betrayal. Why do you keep using that word betrayal? I said, well, it's true. He said, well, well actually, some of the scenarios you gave me... It's, I don't think betrayal is the right word. It's a very strong word. He said, I would say something like, it's unfortunate or it's a shame that happened. But he said, I don't think they're all betrayals, Paul. 
And I thought, well, that's not right. They feel like betrayals to me. He said, what I'm going to do is let's find some other words you could use. And so he gave me other words, like what I just said, like, oh, that's unfortunate. That didn't go like I thought. That's a bit disappointing. And I changed my words. And over a year of replacing a different word, a better word than betrayal, I found that I didn't feel like I was being betrayed all the time. So you have to unlearn your current message. And it's not fair for your people, I've discovered, because your people that we lead have to suffer under, in that season, they had to suffer under me every time something went wrong. I thought they were betraying me. And it's not true. Some of it's true, but very, very small amount of it was actually betrayal. You know, replace your words with what the Bible says about you. You are a masterpiece. He makes you well. You're in his family. You're loved. You know, I was explaining to my son this week just about God's love because I, was, I was just had a moment where I was thinking and praying. I, 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 just got, I, I was thinking about the, what's the number one theme of the Bible? Because we're just doing a series. I just wrote a series on God in the box. Get God out of the box. Right? I feel sorry for the Holy Spirit. So, so years ago, God lived in the ark, right? You could say, you could literally, if somebody's saying, where's God in the Old Testament? You say, you just go down the street, you take the second left, you go into the temple, chat to the priest, and he'll go to the box. God's there. Then through Jesus, God gets let out of the box. Then when we only focus on Sundays with God, we put him back in the box. God in the box. Poor God. Let him out of the box. That's another day. What was I going to say? The theme of the Bible. God's outrageous focus on being close to us. The only reason he got in the box was because he thought that would get him close to us. So his goal is not the box. The goal was how do I get close to people, the ones I love. So you are greatly loved today. Change the theme of the language. The second one is culture. So we've done one self, number two, culture. Culture is just how you behave around here. I've always wanted a scripture to talk about culture. And two years ago, my team asked, Paul, would you talk on culture, get it from a biblical perspective? And I know we always talk about it, you know, Sam Chan's done stuff on culture. But, you know, I found this scripture that to me is the most compelling uh, scripture around Jesus addressing wrong culture. Culture is how we behave in our church, in our families, in our homes. Matthew 16. You know the story, right? So in Matthew chapter 16, this is, this, let me paint it for you. It'll be a little bit paraphrased. So I do it. So here's how it goes. Jesus gets the boys together and he says, hey, boys, just let you know, I'm going to die, at, but good news, I'm going to raise from the dead. Peter hears it, and he immediately goes to Jesus, and he says, Jesus, heaven forbid, that's not going to happen. Now, I have never, in all of the New Testament, there is no, never a moment where Jesus so strongly addresses somebody that is outside of culture. And he turns to, what does he say? He turns to Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. Now, I've heard it preached all sorts of ways. Oh, he's talking about Satan was actually behind him or, you know, his thoughts were Satan. No, no, he just called him Satan. 
And the reason he said he called him Satan is because he said, you have the thoughts of humans, not the thoughts of God. That's what he says. So Jesus addresses it because he knows. Now let's, let's just have some fun. Let's imagine for a moment, Peter and Jesus. Jesus does not address Peter. So let's go again. Peter says, Jesus, I don't know what you're thinking, but that's not happening. Jesus says nothing. Here's what Peter does. Peter goes to the disciples. Peter says, hey, boys, come. Just chatted to Jesus. You know that stuff he was talking about dying? Don't worry about it. We, we had a chat. He's all good. He's a bit tired. He's been doing too much. And he's... He's been work, 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 work. No fishing, just work, 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 work. And I'm here to tell you, you don't even have to have a second thought about that. He will not be dying like he said it is. I got it covered. That's what would have happened if Jesus didn't aggress it. Big mouth Peter would be going to everybody and saying, don't worry about what he said. It's not true. Here's what's actually going to happen. And what Peter would have done was he would have perpetuated something that was outside of the direction that Jesus was going because he didn't believe it. But because Jesus quickly addressed it right there, it stopped. You have to address quickly non-culture language in your church, in your home as parents. How do you end up with wild teenagers? Because you don't address culture, language with teenagers at, or kids at a young age. I'm going to mess with you for a moment. I think we talk about an algorithm. This is where we are. This is where we need to go. There is a language that, that you love. I say you because not me. I've changed mine. That you love, that you keep using, that will not get us here, but you won't change it because you think it's sacred. Check my audience. Don't know how much to upset you. What are some examples? We at Lighthouse have made a rule to ourselves that we will say nothing that we can't, we will say nothing on Sunday that we cannot say in any environment on Mondays. So we have a, we have a language culture guide. I didn't develop, my team developed nine years ago. And they went through 50 plus words and phrases that we either will not say anymore or we have to, if we say it, we will explain it every time we say it. Because we are in a bubble. That's it there. And this bubble has its own language. And I can tell you, thank God, I mean, I'm retired now from chaplain. I was the chaplain for the basketball team for 17 years. Thank God, because it taught me I can't be a weird Christian with my own language that means everything to me and nothing to them. And so my question to you, the algorithm, are you willing to deny yourself your favorite words in order to move this? So I'm just, it's going to be upsetting, but I'm going to say it. This is not the house of God. It's not. It's not even theologically correct. You are the house of God. 
So, so every time we call this the house of God, you tell this group of people, God is a place you go to. He's a destination. He's in a box that you can visit. If you want to meet God, you should come down the street, past the thing, opposite Coles, and he's here. But if we're going to reach them for the sake of them, not us, just call it a gathering or a service. And just say, hey, we're, going to, we're having a gathering on Sunday. Because what we do is we teach the new generation that God is everywhere, just as powerful no matter where you go. Jesus called it the Ecclesia, which is a group of people called out under my name that gather together. We are, we are the church in multiple different places. We're trying not to, and it's hard. This is hard for me too. We're trying not to call people non-Christians. So here's what we don't say. We don't say we're going to win our community. Because I've talked to my community. They don't want to be one. Apparently. Apparently it's a, it's a down word. I, I tell you what they don't want. They don't want to be overcome. <laughs> right? And we're having this discussion last night, and I'm, I was going to say, I say this respectfully, but maybe I don't. I don't know. And even I felt, I noticed it when I read that scripture this morning. I, I watched churches and pastors talk about, we just want the, we want the fire of God to come. Is that the right language in a nation that literally burns in bushfires? Is, do, we want, do we want the community to hear us talking about we want God to rain down fire in our church? When Tenerfield's burning? Is that really what we want? Because you know what that is? That's Christians communicating like what they love with no thought about what others might need. It's good to come once anyway. The discipline to take all of our language that we're doing for generations and put it through the filter of, if we just adjust it slightly, I don't mean even wholesale slightly, that maybe people here would understand what we're talking about. Just a thought. And Jesus was very quick and very fast to address culture. Okay, so we've done, what have we done? Self? What was the next one? Culture, good. Now I've got to cover this one, middle finger. Others. I've deliberately made it the middle finger. It wasn't an accident. I'm just trying to cover, I don't want people to accidentally. Put your, put your photo, your cameras down. The president giving the middle finger to the room. And they let me lead a church. I made it the middle finger because we need to recognize the language of how we speak to others. What we say, according to Proverbs 15.4, can heal or damage. Uh, when you speak healing words, Proverbs 15.4, you offer others the fruit from the tree of life. Yeah. But unhealthy, negative words do nothing but crush their hopes. See, here's a couple of things. If you and I really believe that what we say can potentially heal a person, We'd be very careful about what we say. But not only that, we'd be strategic because we would plan words 
for people who are broken, lost, and damaged, and we would intentionally say what they need to hear in order to be healed. So I'm part of the Illawarra, in my region, the Illawarra Business Chamber. Here's a tip. I go to the Illawarra Business Chamber. There's 300 business people from my city in that room. I'm the only pastor. You should join one. Your church is a business. Join it. So I go around the room. I, I go to these environments all the time. I've never shared the gospel so much in my life. I, I don't need to have an outreach program. I just join the community. So I was there just this last week. Every single person I'm talking to, I know I walk into a room, so I don't waste space. So I recognize if I'm going to anything, there's a purpose. So I walk into that room and I start working the room because it's a network night. That's what you do. Nobody stands by themselves. It's like, net, it's like the church you wanted on steroids. Everybody's talking to everybody. So I go to every person, and I just know two or three good questions, and before we know it, we're talking about life and God. So I, just, I was talking to a guy, he's an accountant, he's been an accountant for six years. He's just, his wife's got, they've got two kids, they just had a, they've got a 13-week-old, I think he said. And I said, so, gee, it must be tough fitting it all in. He said, yeah, it is, man. He said, do you ever feel like, um, as a dad, you're not good enough? I said, you wouldn't believe it all the time. He said, I just feel like I'm, all I do is work, but I've got to work because we need the money and we've got a house to pay. And I said, well, what do you do with the, I don't feel good about being a dad? And he told me about that. I said, you know something? I think you're a great dad. I think you've been hard on yourself. I think us men, we regularly feel like bad dads. But I said, I tell you, it's a feeling. Because I can tell by what you told me, you're working hard in your job. That's good. He said, you, he said I get home and I try to play with my kids first. I said, I'm going to encourage you right there. I said, I know what it's like. I get home from work and I just want everybody to leave me alone. I said, but I'm going to tell you, if you can spend 30 minutes, here's how you do it. Don't tell anybody. Treat it like it's part of your job, your day. Give you a stretch to 30 more minutes and play with your kids when you get home. I'll never forget it. 30 minutes every day. He, 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 he literally, this is going on, Chris, he, he leaves as he's leaving. He says, um, I can't believe what you told me tonight. He said, I feel like a load's lifted off me. Because words heal. What if you walked into every space, said, I'm going to use my words to heal somebody. I'm going to use my words. And you say, well, did he give, give his heart to the Lord? No, not my job. No, it's not my job. All I, all I had in the moment was to create in him a sense of lift, of load. That was my job in that moment. Words heal. What about this? Proverbs seventeen twenty seven. Can you bridle your tongue when your heart is under pressure? Well, that's the true test. That's how you show that you are wise. Thank God for getting older, hey? Oh, Annette often hears me talking with it, not to them, but afterwards when I listen to some of our young guys, guys and girls leading, and I, I often make the comment, oh, that's young man syndrome, which is talk before you think. And it says, an understanding heart keeps you cool, calm and collected no matter what you're facing. Um, one of my new pastors, he joined our team recently and we're doing a staff thing and he said... Um, he said, oh, Paul, what's, what, how do you lead differently today than what you did when you were in your 20s? 
I said, oh, that's easy. I said, I talk less and apologize more. I apologize a lot. In fact, I'm happy to apologize. Did you know one of the things I've done the last year and I've found out across our regions that pastors have been treated badly? You know one of the things I've done? Ring them up. I've been ringing pastors all this year, pastors who were wrongly treated or maybe they were even disciplined for a season but we're quick to, we're quick to discipline them and then we didn't invite them back in. So some of them have been paying penalties for 10 years. So they got corrected, yeah, you need to not lead for a year, you did that or you shouldn't have done that. And nobody goes back to them and say, hey, your time's up, welcome back in. Right? I've met pastors who have been ostracised or disciplined for 10 years over stuff that in our code of conduct, you, you can, I'm not encouraging this, but you can literally be divorced, your credential goes for two years, but you can come back again after two years. I meet people who had misdemeanours and have been ostracised from their region for 10 years. What on earth is that? What's that? So I ring them up. Because, see, as you get older, it does, you, you know the power of when somebody finally says, I'm sorry. So I ring them up and say, look, I know we don't really know each other, but this is what I heard. I heard that you haven't been allowed to come to a regional event for 10 years. I just want to say I'm deeply sorry that you've been treated that way on behalf of our movement. I just want to say, I don't know who said that to you, but it was wrong. And I want you to know that you're more than welcome in our family. I, I had one guy, their pastor rang me the, that Sunday, so I spoke to that person during the week, and he, the pastor rings and said, I, Paul, I just had such and such turn up in my church, they have not been for 10 years to any church, because you rang during the week to say sorry. What, what does it matter that I've got to swallow a bit of pride? What does it matter that I'm uncomfortable about a po- what? What does it matter? When I can say, I can use words to heal someone. And we withhold words, constantly withhold words, not knowing that if we bother to use them wisely, people all around us could be healed. Colossians 4, 6. Let every word you speak be drenched with grace and tempered with truth and clarity. For then you'll be prepared to give a respectful answer to anyone who asks about your faith. I never argue with anybody about the gospel god doesn't need me to do it he doesn't need defending you know the first thing the hawks when i knew i often the hawks are the basketball team there'd be a couple of american imports and one of the other guys and often walk into their circle and i'm the rev right so one of them thinks he's been a smart alec so he says well what do you think rev i go what do you mean what do you think about what what do you think about same-sex relationships Oh, and while you're at it, what do you, what do you think about guns? <laughs> and while we're here, tell us what you think about abortion. I, I, I've had that, like, like they just poof, straight away. I said, oh, I said, do you really want to know? Yeah, we do. I said, well, let's have a coffee. I said, because you want me, I know what you want me to do. You want me to say yes or no. I said, I don't do that. I don't do yes or no, but I'm happy to have a discussion. So I said, here's what we do. If what you're saying is really, really true, let's have a coffee. I'm going to listen to what you believe about same-sex relationships, and then you can listen to me. And then we'll have a discussion about it. But I'm not doing yes or no, because we both lose. 
So words, words are powerful, but they've got to have context. I'm not here to defend God. He's big and capable enough of doing that for himself. Okay, we've moved off the middle finger. Everyone say amen. Your past. <laughs> I apologize for that. I don't think the, uh, the devil's greatest strategy is temptation. I think it's accusation. And just because you're a pastor doesn't mean you won't be accused. Um, and I think this, I think the devil has a sermon about your life that he preaches to you all the time. And actually, unfortunately, the problem with it is the reason why he has a sermon about your life is because some of the things he's preaching to you about are kind of true. <laughs> which, is, which is hard because he's a liar, but then he coughs up some true information. And so, you know, you've got people in your churches, particularly men, I would say, who go to worship God. They go to lift their hands, but the devil says, you watched pornography this week. So hands go down. So, so by the way, so we t- I teach men, or young men particularly, when you come into environments where you know that you want to read the Word, where you want to worship, but you've done something you shouldn't have, and so you feel like you're not allowed to, I, I'm going to give you the number one rule. You do the opposite to how you feel. So you always worship. So you hear the voice say you can't worship. So you worship like you've never worshipped before. You hear the devil say you shouldn't read your Bible. You're not a Christian. How could you? You just read the Bible more than you were going to. You do the opposite because it's just a voice and you've got to unlearn that voice. So the devil, he recites it's true in a way, but it's not really true because actually the shame that he's speaking to you is not true because Jesus died for it. So it's, an un- so it's true, but it's untrue. It's true circumstantially, but it's not true situationally or positionally in your life. So we know that Jesus took the blame. And in Romans 8.1, the Passion Version, I like it because of the first line, it says, so now the case is closed. Because it is. You know, if you ask anybody in my church or even ask Annette, I'm known as the community guy a bit, I guess, which I don't speak on every week in my own church, by the way. I have other topics. But the other thing I'm, very, I'm good at speaking on is freedom. Because I'm a church kid. And I grew up thinking the goal of the church for me was that I'd become a nice guy. It had one major problem. I wasn't good at being nice. So I constantly felt like an inferior Christian because everybody else looked like they had a handle on Christianity, but I, I didn't. And it wasn't until I was 17 years of age where somebody preached on law versus grace. Like I gave my heart to the Lord at six, but I actually at 17 had such an encounter around the grace of God that I no longer entertain any words of guilt in my life. I walk with my head high. Walk absolutely free because of what Jesus has done. I've earned none of it, deserved none of it. In fact, I'm going to shock you, I still sin. Yeah, not as much as some of you, but... Well, not as much as Darren. I mean, he's hard to keep up with. And so Jesus died for my sin, but it didn't stop me sinning. I still have sin. I'm, I'm doing my best, but I still do stuff wrong. But thank God, because according to Psalm 103, verse 10, you may discipline us for our many sins, but never as much as we really deserve. Nor do you get even with us for what we've done, 
Higher than the highest heavens, that's how high your tender mercy extends. Greater than the grandeur of heaven above is the greatest of your loyal love, towering over all who fear you and bow down to you. Farther than from a sunrise to a sunset, that's how far you've removed our guilt from us. Steve Furtick says it this way in his book, Crash the Chatterbox. He says, a believer who is equally convinced of these two realities, sin is serious, but Christ is enough, is the enemy's worst nightmare. Tweet that. And lastly, future. And I know you want me to, I know what you're thinking and it's not what you're thinking. You want me to say your future is awesome. Problem, problem free. That's another preacher. No, no, your future at one level is awesome, but it's going to be full of challenges and problems. I want to give you a tip. I regularly want to quit. So before I was state president, just leading my own church, I wanted to quit about every six weeks. Now I'm state president, I want to quit every fortnight. And not like, I think about it, like I'm seriously starting to write my resignation. So what I've done is, I have just made quitting my friend. They were like buddies. And I can feel quitting rise in me. I'm like, oh, it's good to see you. It's been at least, it's been three weeks since you've told me to quit. That's the longest we've been apart. See, here's what I know. I know that people without vision never want to quit. They've got nothing to quit from. It's only people with a future that want to cave in. So I just say, oh, quitting. Well, well done. It's good. I know I'm back to normal again. Because what I do is hard. But I understand this, that my goal of life is to do hard well. I can't eradicate hard, but I've got to do hard well. You know, on the other side, my other friend here, is um, Mr. Frustration. I live, my, I live my life completely frustrated. I, I rarely have a day where I'm not frustrated. I'm frustrated with everything. I'm frustrated with my church. I'm frustrated with my team. Frustrated with myself. Frustrated with Darren. <laughs> I mean, I'm just frustrated. Because actually, the way God's made me is that I'm always looking for more and I'm always wanting to do it better and I'm always wanting to make sure we achieve what God gives us to do. So my personality is such that I get frustrated. But rather than ignore it, see, it was frustration that revealed my destiny. Because um, your frustration is your calling. Why, why is my church at a community-engaging church? Because I sat and watched it only be a Holy Spirit church. And something in me said... If I ever get the chance in my life, I would love to lead a church in a way that lost people want to come to it. It wasn't criticism. It was just like that frustrating thing. God used it to send me in the direction I'm meant to go. So frustration is not my enemy. It's my friend. It keeps me sharp. It doesn't let me get lazy, slack. It gets me up out of bed in the morning. And just like the Apostle Paul, we're nearly done. In 2 Corinthians 12, 7. Even though I've received such wonderful revelations from God, 
So to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh. I don't know what that is for you. A messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. Three different times I begged the Lord, take it away. Each time, this is what God said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in your weakness. I absolutely believe that's true. That too many people, too many pastors think that because you're going through pressure, problems, they're endless, you think you're unique. You're not. I think in this day and age, in this world, in the kind of churches we have to lead and grow, you are going to face pressure. It's true. But I can tell you something. God's grace is sufficient. Whatever you're going through, God's grace will bring you through. I want you to know that you, what you do, and you think of the day, here I am, I've got to work two jobs, run my church. I want you to know you're significant. We can't do it without you. We, we want you to know that your size is not what determines your significance. We want you to know that what makes the ACC great in New South Wales is the diversity of churches, styles, sizes, you name it, every one of them contributing to the forward movement of the kingdom. And that you've got to, that voice, I'm not significant, I'm not significant, what we're doing is not important, is I'm telling you, it's not God. It's the accuser. And you have to unlearn the theme of your life. And you have to start speaking to yourself like God speaks to you. And you have to start, you have to remove that wrong language and commit to a new language. I'm going to pray for you and we're going to finish. Father, I just thank you for every single person. God, I thank you that you have given your words to adjust, realign our own words so that they match yours. Lord, if there are things we're saying to ourselves as a theme that today we recognize are not good for us, not helping us. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us change. If it's cultural, if it's towards others, I pray, Lord, that we would just realize the power that sits within us just from our mouths to other people, the words that can change people's lives. Lord, help us today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for having me. We'll see you. Hey again, thanks so much for joining us on this podcast. Whether you are new and exploring faith or a follower of Jesus, there is a next step for you. There is always room to grow, more to be done, destiny to be pursued and people to be reached. So what's your next step? To find out, head over to northwestchurch.com.au. And thanks again for listening.